You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The this, Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. My name is Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. The Hour is RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. Coming up on this month's show, negative reviews. What are they good for? That's the question that Will Lynch, Lisa Blanning and Angus Finlayson will be trying to answer later on. And Dr. Beate Peter, whose experiences in Berlin's music scene led to a PhD on club culture and the unconscious, will be giving a talk exploring unity in dance music. But first, you may remember back in 2015, we published a feature that looked at the devastating effect that Sydney's lockout laws were having on its club scene. This of course is still an ongoing story with Sydney's club promoters and venues still fighting to keep the scene afloat. RA's Matt Unicombe has lived in Berlin for the past six years, but he's currently back in Sydney surveying the damage that the lockout laws have done to the city since he left. He went out to meet some of the people who have been most affected by the crackdown to find out how they adapted in order to keep doing what they love. I grew up in a small town on the east coast of Australia, but Sydney's where I dove into house and techno, working through an English degree while going to clubs every weekend. When I left for Europe after graduating in 2011, the scene was in a healthy place, but in the meantime it's taken a hit. Sydney's King's Cross is probably the most notorious night spot in Australia and it's been that way for decades with its mix of music, booze, drugs and sex. A lot of people are saying that today the mix is going wrong with too many bars and too much violence. One of Sydney's most hardened policemen with more than three decades experience has delivered a blunt statement declaring violence on our streets has never been worse. It's been a violent night across Sydney as police ramped up their two-day operation targeting alcohol-fuelled violence. 312 people were arrested with 427 charges laid. After a string of widely publicised violent incidents, in February 2014, the New South Wales State Government introduced what most people call the lockout laws. These place severe restrictions on how clubs and bars in Sydney's inner city area operate. So where Sydney siders were once able to stay out dancing all night, these laws forced 1.30am lockouts and 3am last drinks at bars, clubs and pubs. As you might imagine, the lockout laws have had a big impact on clubbing in Sydney. Most of the promoters throwing the parties that I attended while at university are gone. The same goes for a lot of the clubs. The narrative around nightlife is bleak, with constant news of closing venues, empty parties and struggling promoters. I'm back in Australia for a few months, so I'm eager to see how promoters in Sydney are faring. And as it happens, the scene's actually in a pretty good place. There are crews throwing great events in warehouse spaces outside the lockout zone, while a few newer venues have become hotspots for exciting local DJs. To get around the lockout laws, the scene has just been forced to adapt. One recent weekend, I met some of the people driving today's scene. There's Dave Abram, the owner of a venue called Frieda's that recently had its opening hours extended. I also caught up with Carly Roberts, the veteran Sydney DJ and the promoter behind Picnic a popular event series that paved the way for groups doing warehouse parties today. We have a USB and also I don't have... Uh, did RCA you bring needles? Cables. I don't have RCA cables on needles. Oh, no RCA cables. So they should give us RCA cables. A few hours before their most recent warehouse event, I caught up with Nick, James and Aidy from Rimbombo and they told me about what it's like throwing warehouse parties. I'm Aidy Tui, I'm a DJ and radio host and one third of Rimbombo. I'm James Greville, I'm one third of Rumbombo and one half of Kenoth Records with my friend Nick here. 
I'm Nick, or DJ Earl Grey, one third of Rumbombo and one half of Ken Earth Records with James. So how many warehouses do you think there are in Sydney to do this kind of thing in? Because it seems like you're always doing it in somewhere new. They sort of go on rotation because every time the heat gets on one space, they might shut down for 12 months if the cops have been coming every every weekend. Um, so I think, I mean, at our disposal right now, there'd be about three, maybe four warehouses. But like I said, yeah, one, one will get too much attention. And so the people who are living there will just say no more. We don't want to get fined $20,000. Um, and then a new one kind of springs up in that absence. I think it's important to know as well that they're not all strictly warehouses with you know people living in there and that they rent it out for you officially. Um, some people uh, are a bit naughtier and maybe more creative than us and they'll break into spaces. Uh, and do a party, just a one-off there. Um, some people do parties under bridges. That's obviously not a warehouse, but it's a similar vibe. So there are kind of infinite opportunities for, for what you can do. But in terms of, I guess you could call them semi-legitimate warehouse spaces, I think three is sort of the number that we'd be using. If you worked really hard, you could find more, I'm sure. So how many people do you get to these things? Most of the spaces that we've done things in operate at about a 250 capacity. Uh, so we sell about that many tickets, but obviously over the course of the night that will fluctuate and some people might come early and leave early and other people might arrive after them. So if the venue costs maybe two grand and um, we can fit 200 people or 250 people in, then maybe we can break even or make money on tickets. And keep in mind also that the security guard to punter ratio is usually like one to 250. So, and these are 250 like really keen party people. So it can get pretty wild and sometimes it's a bit scary. You know, uh, we haven't had any incidents, but people sort of generally feel pretty lucky to be in a place like that or to be at a party like that. And I think we sort of rely on all of us to look after each other and to make sure that everyone's safe. So you mentioned the police like being an issue. What kind of influence do they have? Like, is there always a risk of getting a party shut down? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, uh, we actually did get shut down our first party ever um, a long, long time ago, uh, just from noise complaints because we were stupid and the warehouse was too close to, um, oh, actually twice we've had it happen, where the warehouse is just too close to apartments or whatever and people just complain and it gets closed down at, you know, 2 a.m. after three complaints or something like that. But there have been a lot of, like, issues also in certain places where people have gotten hurt because... Um, you know that they're not really looking out for themselves um, and then you know if an ambulance gets called then police attention and then you know a space will close down and that's happened a couple times as well but I think mainly noise is the issue and people just kind of um, loitering on the streets you know leading them to the space and that's why when, when we kind of send emails out to everyone it's kind of like get to the space stay inside the space you know everyone take care of each other but make sure that you're all kind of being aware that you have an effect on what's going to happen with the police. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like this old school 90s way, like keeping the spot secret until the last minute. Why is that important? Uh, generally, the parties will, will sell out a bit ahead of time, you know, a few hours before. And so you keep the location secret because you just don't want it to spread uh, on Facebook and, you know, just through people telling their friends to come. We're always pretty lucky and we usually sell out ahead of time and then we can say, absolutely no door sales and that usually deters people but it's basically just to keep the party from getting shut down by police uh keeping people away from the street keeping them inside the venue and yeah just to to save the party 
So have you done any events in clubs? We did quite a few club events. Um, they are really hard to hustle and we've just lost money on a, a lot of parties and clubs and, and warehouses have been much more successful for us. But we do do a night at Frida's every second month, which is a bar. Um, not so clubby, but like a clubby bar kind of, I don't know. But it's, it's a really, really fun spot and that's always crowded and we always just have a fun time there. Every time we play, it's always a, a small but super up for it crowd. We can kind of play whatever we want there and everyone always has a really good time. And they also just had their license extended from midnight until 2am. So being able to push it just that little bit further has really been such a boon for Sydney. My name is David Abraham. I set up Frida's coming on six years now, but the whole process has actually been seven years with a sort of year of applications and the rest of it. I caught up with Dave in the kitchen at Frida's where he told me what it's like to run the space. Once we'd found the site, which is a really amazing warehouse space in Chippendale in the inner city that had been derelict for 13 years. And even though this area is this quite exciting, buzzing area, it was pretty much felt like the ends of the earth back then. Um, so we were transforming what was a derelict building in a pretty derelict area. And we had opposition from a neighbor that lived basically in Broadway, which for people who don't know Sydney very well is a, like the suburb across, but she was one of these serial objectors. So even just her incurrence in this of someone who is known to council as a serial objector probably cost me and my business partners at the time probably anywhere between forty to fifty thousand dollars just as people trying to set up a new business in an area full of derelict buildings and that's somewhere along the line where the system fails a little bit is that as much as it's about fair voice for everyone including residents and it should be um, a little bit too much power goes to to uh, to some people who know the system and know how to know how to object. It sort of seems weird to use the word club in Sydney these days. It's sort of like a, a great, uh, you know, uh, memory from the past that doesn't really exist anymore. But um, I used to go to clubs when I was a teenager and it was a very transformative experience for me as it is for a lot of people outside of just loving music. Just the, I really love the environment, you know. It's sort of one of these things where a lot of negativity is put on nightlife but it's actually really uh you know community and loving environment in, in a lot of those places not all of them but a lot of them so that's something which is kind of quite quite missed in the conversation um but 2011 in sydney for people that were involved in nightlife and and music and and the energy was really really high then you know and i think things weren't that easy for me in the beginning of my business but definitely as i sort of was getting into it and you know had friends around who was who were you know i guess involved in music stuff and putting putting parties on there was a real sort of it was like the winds of change had swept through when you think about a city that's functional in terms of business running on streets and the and the shop front and 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 streetscape and urban life what is it about being in a city that is attractive to people and why do people want to live into the city and it's it's you know I hate this word but it is the right word it's like the vibrancy of a city and when and when you think about that you know it starts with your coffee in the cafe in the morning and then at lunchtime you might go to another cafe or to to a restaurant and then for dinner you go to a restaurant and then after that restaurant you can go to a bar 
and then the good bars you know might end up you might end up dancing at that bar and then you might go from that bar to a club okay and then if you really want to you can go to a day club you know that's what used to happen right that, and that's what happens in most cities that people would would say this is the kind of nightlife that we aspire to as a city okay and we've kind of lost that whole sense of that cycle and and the importance of that cycle because all those businesses feed each other and if you take an element out of it like the club the daytime businesses suffer too and it's really obvious when you look at Oxford Street and and the sort of peripheral businesses that were there in some cases for decades you know there was a news agent that was there for 80 years which is gone now all this peripheral business that used to exist was gone because of late night being shut down we are by nature a tourist economy here and uh, and so those impacts go far and wide from the sort of small business owner trying to run their shop in an area that has activity day and night to to someone in in in, in germany or america going should i even be bothered flying halfway across the world to go to this place that is beautiful, but I wanna, I wanna enjoy myself. I'm on a holiday, and what can I do there? You know, it's not like that old Sydney that that we sort of have some hazy memories of now. But it doesn't carry the aggression that permeated Sydney's nightlife when I was growing up. What do you have? Are more people doing warehouse parties now? I remember when I left Sydney, they would happen, but definitely not as often. Are they happening more often since the lockouts? There's definitely enough warehouse parties to keep you sort of having a good time pretty much every weekend. I think tonight, the people who installed sound for us, Buzz, they had two other jobs at nearby warehouses. Actually, one of them is an aqua party, which is a techno thing, which is apparently really great. And the other one, I'm not sure about. But, you know, having three warehouse parties in one night is quite big and... Um, yeah, I'm sure there's going to be enough people to attend all three. I think they might be happening more often since the lockouts because people are actively seeking them out. But there, Sydney has a long history of warehouse parties. When when I first started going out, some of my first great club experiences were going to picnic one night stands, which was Carly's party that she used to um, put on in warehouse parties, which has now grown so big that um, it's been mostly in real clubs of late but yeah the and the places that we will go to then st petersburg and holland street like i said those those warehouses have now um moved on the people are just people are living in there but they're no longer doing gigs there and these new warehouses have come to fill the void i also caught up with carly roberts the veteran sydney dj and the promoter behind picnic a popular event series that paved the way for groups doing warehouse parties today she's also the booker at harpoon harry one of the best spots to hear house and techno in Sydney today. I'm Carly Roberts. I run Picnic, which is coming up to 10 years, and DJ under Carly. So we've spoken to a few people who put on warehouse parties, and I think you were one of the people that made this like such a thing in Sydney. So how was it putting on warehouse parties pre-lockouts? Completely different. <laughs> Cheaper. So when we first started Picnic, um, I'd already been... DJing for a long time so I was pretty sure of what I wanted from an environment um, so I guess there were certain things when it came to controlling that environment that I found I didn't really love that was mainly security at venues 
So warehouse parties were really in the beginning a way to have complete control over the environment. It was just so people weren't going to have any judgment kind of passed on them, they'd be in a safe environment. And, and they cost hardly anything, like often there'd be restrictions put on them and we would do everything we could to keep the environment safe. So we would never say it was a warehouse party, we would never have heavily promote it, we would never put up posters, um, we would just try to be really discreet and do whatever the owners wanted. So we could continue doing it, you know, because it was such a, a beautiful thing. So we would often sacrifice the quality of the sound to put on a great party that was, you know, really easy to deal with. <laughs> um, I mean, putting on warehouse parties is great, um, but, you know, before lockouts, things would always go wrong. You know, venues become hot. Um, the people with the leases don't want to don't want to run them anymore. They get really stressed out. It becomes a you know a tough environment for everyone to be in. Um, so I ended up wanting the the ease of using a venue a lot of the time. <laughs> After taking a bit of a break from doing them and then going back, the first thing that I noticed was that the rent on places went from something that you could really afford and build into a ticket price to something that it kind of tripled. Is that because there was more demand for these spaces and they just could charge that? And it was because of the lockouts that people were looking elsewhere? Absolutely, yeah, that seemed to be, and yeah, I guess like demand, and, and so therefore they could. And there were a lot of people that perhaps didn't have the experience to know that it was a bit like kind of extortion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but but I still love putting on warehouse parties. I, I really love it, actually. But it has its own whole set of problems. And also, just because the costs are so huge now, it's just like, kind of took the fun out of it for me. And I feel that, that the most important thing to do, while things are tough, is to work out how to exist within what we've got. Because there's still a whole lot of stuff that we've got that's really great. And people are starting to come around. Like There was a period where empathy just set in like really strongly and I love all the people that are doing them at the moment. Um, there's some great parties and in the same way that we built Picnic in the same way there's some awesome parties run by awesome DJs and groups of friends coming up that is that same kind of model you know like um, yeah but I, I have a different kind of agenda at the moment I guess. So since I left like there's a focus on different venues now Harpoon Harry Frida's just seems like things have shifted. Why do you think that's the case? Um, because there was a lack of venues, so people just went into certain venues. It was being drilled into us that it was hard work to go out, and we were, and we did live in a city where you know, like, we had the luxury of being able to choose to do something different if the if the security at a venue was crappy, you know, like, and that was like really the extent of the problems. So when the lockouts came in, I mean, it's easier for me to talk about my story with Picnic, but when the lockouts came in, we made a really quick move to a great venue that was outside the lockouts, to the Imperial. I had DJ Harvey play the first weekend and it was, it was a complete flop. Like, there was no one on the streets. Like, no one, because everyone, the city just went into kind of like this hysteria, you know, like everyone just saying like, you know, you're bad people, <laughs> like every, I don't know, it was just, it was a pretty tough environment. And I think that general, and then that kind of turned into people staying at home more, having house parties, entertaining themselves. Um, and so I think there was a, just a bit of a downturn in all entertainment. People weren't prepared to take such big risks. So, and even if it wasn't their risk, they would be worried about the kind of party that was coming into venues. Do you know what I mean? And then the other thing is, is like to put on a party. I remember one of the first parties that I put on 
um, when post imperial post like post lockout post imperial for picnic um, the venue that I used although it was a phenomenal party like that wasn't set up to put on parties so the cost of production meant that there was like not a chance of making any profit and then you had to spend like a whole day setting up and backing down and like you just have to be you just have to be smarter and I do run Harpy and Harry so I in general have put a lot of focus onto that venue because now it's one of the first options that you think of like hey I want to go out it's at the top of the list. Yeah, it was, in the beginning it was a struggle. They asked me to come in and be the promoter full time. So I take care of all the music and do all the bookings. And I and my intention was to put it on the map. Like that was, that was what I set out to do. In the beginning I had to be really conservative with the bookings. When I first went in there I just worked really hard and I gave it my all. We just kept on taking risks that wouldn't petrify anyone. <laughs> and most of them paid off um, and it just gets bigger and, and better. So what makes a good warehouse party? We've spoken before and like the word free came up. I guess that's the central thing. We're in a city or a country with certain things are so regulated and a warehouse is basically at the opposite end of the scale, which mo lots of people don't get to experience. Like, why is it important to have this sense of freedom? Well, in the warehouse, it's a place for freedom of expression and you can pull your craziest dance moves and no one's gonna kick you out for that. And then the boring technical side of things, having a great sound system is important. The DJs playing good music is also very important. The warehouses in general get quite high caliber talent coming through. I think the crowd is important as anything else. Um, any sort of creepy people or overly intoxicated people who can't handle their shit uh, and are making other people feel uncomfortable, um, that can really ruin a vibe and I think that's something um, that we're really conscious of and everyone in the scene is very conscious of is if there is some sort of person making anyone feel uncomfortable, they're out straight away. And that's important and that's understood with most people so it's a very rare thing but when it does happen, it's, a, it's not questioned. Something I've noticed which I feel really positive about is in the email that we send out to ticket holders just before the event, for ourselves at Rimbombo and also Vibe Positive and other parties, they make sure to in include a bit of an, an addendum about behaviour and respect and no um, transphobia or no racist or um, ableist attitudes are allowed here. As we've heard, the scene in Sydney is very much alive. And while the conditions are tough, that hasn't stopped dedicated promoters, DJs and fans from pushing things along. I guess what has been lost with this is opportunities for young people to DJ and, and perform. Um, so because of the reduction in clubs and spaces to perform, there's a lot of very, very talented people in this city and they don't have a place to, um, to play. So uh, a, lot, a lot of our friends will, will do parties, not necessarily in warehouses, but there's a bridge, um, which I won't give away the location of, but there's a bridge that is often um, home to some great parties and I've got a lot, lot of respect for the hard work they do. Their whole clubbing history has included the lockouts in Sydney, but they've had the initiative to create these opportunities for themselves and for their peers, which is pretty amazing. Here's Carly Roberts. Um, when the lockouts came in, I was impacted really heavily, as were heaps of people. I have worked my way around and out of that situation and so I think like one great thing that's happened in Sydney is that all the people that are doing stuff now 
they're all so fucking fantastic because they're all their passion has to be so strong and their vision has to be so clear because otherwise they will just not survive i think that sydney is becoming more defined i think it has more going on than ever in the style of music that we like um and and that's only a positive like there's great healthy competition amongst quite a few groups of people but i think yeah there, there is a model that isn't really relevant to sydney as much anymore um which is that typical nightclub kind of situation but that's also because a lot of those the spaces weren't built for the restrictions that we have on us now but i think people have got smarter and and clearer in their vision and they're the people that will continue to shape whatever comes next the lockout laws are here to stay but so are promoters like Grim Bombo, Dave and Carly as well as the hundreds of clubs that visit their events each month as we've seen in other cities around the world what's happening in sydney is another reminder of dance music's ability to thrive despite restrictions so thanks to a lot of hard work and perseverance, Sydney is still a great place to be a music fan. At the beginning of October, RA hosted an event as part of the charity War Childs Film Festival. We screened Real Scenes London publicly for the first time, and there was a talk with the RA writer Luis Manuel Garcia. We also welcomed Dr. Beate Peter to the stage, who posed the question, what influence does dance music have on your subconscious? Following the event, Beate was kind enough to record a condensed version of her talk for the hour. So what I'm going to talk about is part of a longer two-hour talk um, in which I combine a theory that I borrowed to apply to the dance floor to explain what happens to people when they dance. And what I did for my PhD, the title of my PhD was uh, Jung on the Dance Floor, The Psychology and Phenomenology of Clubbing. And I tried to explain in my PhD why people might be motivated to go dancing and what draws them to the dance floor. And rather than focusing just on the music, I was trying to explore all the different aspects that impact on your dance floor experience. So for example, the light, the sound, the loudness of the sound, the quality of the sound, the kind of external factors. So queuing system, bouncers, prepaid tickets, pre-sales, registration for pre-sales to get into the proper sales an exclusivity of an event. So all these aspects that might influence how you are impacted upon when you enter the dance floor. And then also how you are prepared to get into a situation in which you can explore yourself freely. So I'm a social scientist. I'm a musicologist by trade who analyzes notes. I'm a social scientist as it happened in my career. And that means I'm looking how music impacts on people. So I'm looking at at the role of music within wider society, a community, a group of people, wider society. But what's very interesting is that music has become a very popular subject for neuroscientists to investigate. So this is not research that I've done, but I find it very illuminating when I talk about my research. Neuroscience is a very young research subject, and it's it's all the kind of data stuff that I don't really know. But one of the some of the interesting things that have come out of there is when, when, for example, people 
talk about the loss of inhibitions when people go onto the dance floor and that there's a connection between the body and the mind, it's quite hard to prove. And as researchers, we're still looking for for a terminology to explain that and to actually have it verified. And that might take a few years still. But uh, one of the things that I'm really interested in is when, when we talk about the DJ set and we look at particular patterns on, at how DJ sets work, then we have a build-up. So we have a we have a kind of composition of the night where the BPM kind of start increasing and then obviously when the main act is on which is never the last act it's kind of the culmination of all these aspects coming together and then after the main act you usually have an act that kind of brings you down again so we have kind of a peak over the night but then within a DJ set there's certain um, there's certain I, I don't want to call them tricks but there's certain features of a DJ set um, and one of them is that you have a build up within a DJ set and then you have a break and that usually means that the, the beat is going at least the, the forefront of the beat so I usually just try to dance along and count after hear the beat because the ear is also possible to hear something that is not really there anymore so it's it's kind of a memory game where the ear is able to reproduce the sound just to stay with it and then when the bass drops in again, that's usually um, the moment where emotions are released. So researchers have found, not with electronic music, but with all sorts of different music, that when une something unexpected happens in the music, that this is when people release emotions. Now, it doesn't for now, not matter. it doesn't matter what quality of emotions, but it's just the emotional release. And I'm trying to say that part of the reasons why people raise their arms and, and are very happy and shouting and screaming and crying and whatever else they do on the dance floor is because although it is predictable that there will be a drop back into the set with the bass, people don't ever really know when that happens. And I've been to many, many bad DJ sets where you're waiting for it and it's kind of DJs are overdoing it and you're kind of losing the euphoria, you, you're you losing it and you, you withdraw from the situation. But when it's a really good DJ set, then it just hits you. You really don't know when it's coming, but when it comes in, it's it's just a perfect moment. And there's lots of research going on. A few years ago, I saw that um, a big digital company started to explore the wearing of wristbands that would measure heart rate and sweat and pulse and in order to send messages to the DJ to kind of monitor what's happening on the dance floor. That's not really what should happen because, of course, as soon as it becomes predictable, then the whole release of emotions wouldn't happen. So I'd like to keep it <laughs> to the skill of the DJ to just take us on this trip and then drop it back in whenever the crowd is ready to just release those emotions and then work with those emotions on the dance floor. I'd like to think of the dance floor as something very personal. So it's not, of course, we can have descriptions of a dance floor and we might get a sense of what it gives us and what it provides us. But ultimately, every time you go out clubbing and dancing, you don't really know what you let yourself in for and you don't really know what's going to happen and if it's going to work out. So um, one of the things that researchers and scholars that research electronic music um, have been discussing for years is the whole idea of a vibe. 
And this is to describe a situation on the dance floor in which you are happy to let go of your inhibitions, in which you are no longer focused on your outer self, on how you present yourself, on what you wear, what you look like, your facial features, if your hair is perfect, um, but in which you are in a group of people with whom you feel safe and and you just start to explore parts of yourself that you usually don't explore. Now, I've been asked before what that could be, and it could just be that you dance in a way that you haven't danced before, that you move in a particular way, but also that you look at people differently, that you perceive the whole atmosphere on the dance floor as something very special that isn't necessarily created all the time. Um, but if, if, it's, if it's good, if it's a good vibe, then it's an amazing night. So it's not... It's not necessarily about me going clubbing and the promoter or event organizer gives all of this to me. I'm part of a spectacle where I also need to contribute in order for this to happen. So it's a very participatory culture. And therefore, I believe it's very important to interview or to ask individual people to describe so that we as scholars have have terminology to pass on what it is but also to really get to individual experiences to see what is it that can be achieved and I'm not saying that everybody who goes clubbing has the same experience far from it it might work for one person and not at all for the other person it might be a great night for one really bad night for the other it really depends so to look at the phenomenon of clubbing means I really look at individual people but the more people I interview the more I get an idea of what the summary of those experiences could be if it was well done, if it was convincing the people on the dance floor. When we look at research into different musical cultures and youth cultures, then traditionally we have a dance floor that is, that is very clearly defined, which you have to enter. So you could, for example, the I don't know, the traditional disco setting is that you go to the venue and there's lots of non-dance floor space for you that you can wander about, you can go to the bar, but you can also observe the dance floor in youth cultural studies that used to be called the male gaze. So it traditionally used to be kind of blokes drinking their beer, looking how the girls are dancing on the dance floor. And, um, and this has changed with kind of club culture, electronic music, because those events, because they rely on you participating in the dance, there isn't really um, a very physically defined dance floor anymore. So you can't necessarily see where it starts and where it ends. You get an idea of how the lightings are rigged, but still it doesn't really tell you where exactly you step on and where you step off. So it might be that you leave kind of the middle of the dance floor where it's really hot and happening and steamy, but you might dance off to the bar or you might dance off to just to a darker corner or, you know, whatever it is. So, so the dance floor itself is no longer this clearly defined physical space, which I think is really good because it takes away this conscious decision from you to stop dancing or start dancing. You could potentially also be on the dance floor, leaning next to a pillar and not dance and just kind of watch the DJ do their magic. But I think the idea really is that as you enter the space, the whole space is penetrated by sound, even if it's different rooms, and you enter into a physical activity of dance when you go into a nightclub.
One of the things that I looked at in my PhD is how um, ethnographers, so people who travel to other cultures, have looked at music cultures and how music is used in different cultures. And one of the things that I really liked and thought would help me to explain the EDM dance floor is tribal cultures that use trance as a practice. The first thing to say about this is that trance as a practice is not very popular in Western culture because it deals with phenomena that we don't approve of in a Western culture. Western culture is predominantly rational, although this is changing. So we do have now a move towards you know, kind of Eastern cultures and different religions and exploring them. And, and maybe partly because people are, are losing their spirit or maybe even their sense of being, their purpose of being in the world. So there's definitely an, an opening up to kind of Eastern ideas of living and being. But I think in general, and that's mainly, I would say, based on philosophy, is that our prevailing thought is that we are, as humans, a, a, a rational rational beings that can explain things. So to look at trance would not necessarily be the done thing, because trance in those tribal cultures, and I, I look particularly at possession trance, means that an outside god or spirit possesses you, and for the time that you are possessed, you lose control over your body and also over your voice, and an external spirit is, is kind of communicating through you to other people but also to you. I like this idea of kind of looking at the EDM dance floor in terms of trance not because I wanted to say everybody is kind of reaching a higher state of consciousness but maybe to just explore parts of yourself that you don't necessarily use on a day-to-day -day basis when you kind of I don't know do your daytime job or when you look after your kids or, or your sick parents or whatever it is and the link that I made in order to use kind of possession trance as an argument. I used the theory of Carl Gustav Jung, who was a Swiss psychologist, um, and he explains the human psyche in a, in, a, in a way that I find very comfortable to think about myself. So he talks about the conscious mind, and that's the, all the stuff that you are aware of, and he also talks about the unconscious part of the psyche. And he is not alone in talking about the unconscious, but I think what he added to the discussion is his his reference to the collective unconscious. And the collective unconscious, he argues, is, is something that kind of defines humankind, is something that every human being shares around the planet, no matter what culture they are, no matter how they've been nurtured, no matter how they've been raised. It's the kind of basic human behavior that is stored in the collective unconscious. Now, the collective unconscious can never be made conscious, and therefore many people would say it's not relevant. But I would like to say that the, the dance floor is one of these places where you could actually explore your collective unconscious, just your true human being in the world, being in the world, and and maybe finding out who you really are rather than being focused too much on the external world and think about your looks, your language, your 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 moving about, your behavior, your communication with other people. It's kind of to to basically start to look inside a little bit rather than focus on the outside. So it's an it's a kind of introspection whilst you are dancing. The connection between moving bodies and this happening is very important. Um, and I would also like to argue that it doesn't necessarily have to be an external spirit who possesses you. I, I would like to flip this round and say it's actually something inside you that gives you inner guidance. And it's just that in Western cultures, perhaps, we haven't really learned 
or we've forgotten how to listen to our inner selves and how to follow our inner selves and our inner convictions or beliefs or whatever that might be, rather than constantly focus on the external world and how we can achieve that which is kind of socially acceptable or regarded as outstanding performance or something that gives us more money, all these things. Not everybody might have this, but, you know, regularly I feel I have to go dancing. And it's not a particular DJ, it's not a particular venue, it's not a particular space, it's not even with particular people. It's just I need to enter the dance floor to feel grounded again. And this was my original motivation to do this research, to why do I... So this is the phenomenon that I'm looking at. Why do I feel I need to go onto the dance floor if the music is half okay? You know, if I like the kind of the music and if the venue is okay. But, you know, what does it to me? And I come back from the dance floor and I feel relieved. I feel calm. I feel grounded. I feel I can face life again and all the things that are thrown at me. And, and I found that there are more people like me. The EDM dance floor is an opportunity to enter into a practice similar to possession trance where I can explore my inner self and leave it on the dance floor and go out into the daylight and just follow my normal patterns of behavior, but also do it once, twice, three times, four times and maybe see that I'm changing as I'm doing this and maybe maturing in a way that maybe I wouldn't have matured if I hadn't gone clubbing. We'd go as far as to say that negative reviews are among the biggest hot-button issues that surround what we do here at RA. We constantly hear passionate arguments for and against the value of negative reviews, not least in our comments section, and it generally seems like a subject that music fans love to debate. So we thought it would be interesting to gather Will Lynch, Lisa Blanning and Angus Finlayson, who are all regular review writers for RA, to hear what they think negative reviews are actually good for. So, negative reviews, how do we think they're useful? What purpose do they serve in the world of electronic dance music criticism? Well, I think criticism in general needs to be honest, but I definitely remember a time way, way, way back in the day when um, negative reviews were the funnest ones to read, especially like in the enemy Melody Maker era, but... Uh, I'm not sure that's the case anymore. Angus, you're a critic with fangs. What's your take on the matter? Yeah, well, I I mean, yeah, I've his historically, I guess, written maybe more negative reviews than than a lot of other um, music journalists of my sort of cohort. For me, it's the feeling behind that. It wasn't really conscious, but I guess the feeling behind that was always just that, you know, criticism of music should reflect sort of the reality of experiencing the music and that reality always involves encountering like a thing things of mixed quality you know some stuff you love some things that are good with certain flaws some things that are kind of okay some things that are awful you know that's everyone i would i would assume that is everybody's experience of like you know navigating a music culture 
Um, and so I always kind of felt like when you write about music, you should be honest to that. Um, and that maybe by subtracting the bad stuff from the equation, you're not really giving a, a convincing reflection of what's going on. Um, and that therefore maybe people will lose interest in the writing actually because they don't see their own experience reflected in what they're reading. Do you guys feel at all that um, kind of beyond the quality of your own criticism or the beyond the quality of the criticism of the publication you're writing for is part of the purpose to push music forward in some way? Or do you feel like that's maybe a responsibility of the critic in a way to, you know, that your honesty could have an impact on the general trajectory of the art form? That's a big ask. I definitely think that uh, a critic's honesty can help an individual artist that way, but I'm not sure about um, a scene as a whole or something like that. But um, I, I would say that pragmatically speaking, that there's just so much music that comes out these days. Just the, the sheer volume of, of music releases is staggering. And as a critic, you only really want to have to spend time with stuff that you actually like, which is why when you're choosing things to review, you tend to go for things that you are that pique your interest enough that you want to spend time with it. Um, I've definitely been offered things to review, which um, I turned down because I knew I wouldn't like it because I knew the history of the artist. And uh, um, and that also, out of a sense of fairness, I did that so that the artist wasn't um, going up against somebody who already had a preconceived notion of their work. Um, so there, are, I think there's a lot of pragmatism that's involved in in a trend that people what in what people might see as a trend of a lack of negative negativity i think that when um yeah with that kind of process in mind that goes into sifting music and deciding what to review um that can kind of mean and i think this is often missed by maybe the artists who are reviewed or by people reading the reviews that when a negative review is published it's often kind of a sign of of respect um as much as anything because it's um it's the writer saying you know i believe enough in this artist to invest time and energy into working out what's going on with their music and just because my response wasn't in this instance positive doesn't mean that i don't in general think that what they're doing is valuable or and you know if anything it's sort of saying uh, implicitly i would very much like this artist to do better because it would excite me if they did you know um and I think in that sense, maybe I'm being, maybe this is a kind of utop- utopian thought, but I would like to think that, yeah, criticism can, if that sort of thing is being done regularly in the context of a certain scene, a certain kind of music, that it can um, help create an environment where like the people making the music um, make better music or at least try harder um, because they're not in this bubble of positivity. You know, they have people who are criticising them from a place of respect and uh, and maybe that helps them to push themselves on a bit further. It seems like the thing that's really on the wane these days is this uh, hatchet job, like what Lisa mentioned about 
in the you know was more common in the days of uh, print music journalism where a critic would just absolutely trash um, an artist or an album often pretty respected artists um, like the piece in the wire talked about um, Lou Reed and Sonic Youth uh, getting torn apart in the village voice just as a general cultural phenomenon why do you think that doesn't happen as much it doesn't happen the same way anymore well, I'd say I'd say that there's a, a certain level of, a, of of sacred cows that um, that's a lot easier, to, you know, killing the sacred cow is a lot easier to do when that when that sacred cow is so far away from you, especially in the case of um, artists as big as uh, Lou Reed or, or Sonic Youth, or in in one case that I remember, you um, too. So, uh, uh, but he, when you're dealing on the level of of what's getting reviewed. In RA, these are these a lot of these artists aren't aren't don't have nearly the kinds of audience that uh, that those that those pop artists have. So that's 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 possibly one of the reasons. Um, sort of expanding on that, it points to like a change structurally in how music journalism happens because maybe then um, you know there was more money in the industry just because. Um, print publications could have good circulations and support staff writers. Um, so there was more of a feeling of autonomy um, and separation from the world of artists in general. You know, it's like we are the world of music journalists and there's the world of artists and there's some certain distance between them that means that we can be brutally, brutally honest and not feel sort of guilty or bad for that the way that person might feel or whatever whereas now um increasingly um as uh, the economics of music journalism have collapsed and also kind of the, the economics of music and a lot more musicians are maybe jobbing something else in the music industry um these lines are, are much more blurry and you're much more likely to be um treading on social toes you know to be slagging off a friend of a friend or someone that you're bound to meet in the next six months at some event or whatever. So I think that probably has an, an effect as well. Yeah, something that I think about is, um, I forget where it came from, but I just remember hearing that something, like a kind of golden rule in any kind of discourse when you're criticizing someone is to always be um, punching up. Um, and so, you know, the village voice uh, criticizing Lou Reed or Sonic Youth in the peak of their career, that's definitely punching up. For RA, it would kind of be only the most popular artists that we cover where you could comfortably feel that it's punching up. Um, you know, like a lot of the singles that we cover, for instance, are, um, you know, someone's passion project that they're losing money on, even if it sells well, um, which can make it confusing to try to think about what the larger purpose of um, shitting on that passion project really is. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I mean, all that in mind, do we think something important or something valuable is lost in this trend, of, you know, this trend away from uh, negative critique? Yeah, I, I do. And I think um, picking up on your example that you gave there of the passion project, whilst on a sort of humanitarian level can really understand why um it is uh, uh why it's potentially cruel for a uh, 
large publication like RA, large for the world that it's in, to kind of like stomp on some fledgling producer. Um, at the same time, the idea of a, a sort of purely like paternalistic relationship between a publication and the artist that it covers, which involves sort of like patting everyone on the head and saying, you know, well done, you 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 took part. That was the main thing. That sort of actually devalues the music, I think, because you know these people who are um, doing who are putting lots of time and perhaps money into putting out a 12 inch because they really believe in it. It's the potential value of the music is very high. So yeah, to critique the music is um, to take it seriously. And by shying away from that, sort of devaluing potentially what these producers are trying to do in the first place. I, I think that there needs to be some sort of clarification on on what is meant by negative reviews, because there, there's hatchet jobs where you are, where there a review is commissioned with the in, intent, if not necessarily the outcome, of a negative review, and then there's naturally reviewing something because you're interested in it and a negative review ensues because you've given it thought and consideration and you've listened to it loads and you just don't think it mess it, it passes muster and I think that those are two different things and um, I think that the first is only really valuable if it's a really good writer and it's a really well-written piece that is visceral and funny and and is and it's it's worth the quote unquote ink, but uh, um, the second is ob- obviously always worth it. Yeah, it's funny. The only um, I'm not sure I can think of anything from over the years at RA that qualifies as that classic hatchet job that was commissioned with the negative review in mind. But I think the closest one remains possibly my favorite review, which was a uh, cuttingly negative review of. Uh, soul claps uh edits ep that had uh an edit of r kelly's uh ignition i think it was or it had an edit of an r kelly track but the reviewer had a line that said um the the song is catchy enough as it should be it samples a platinum selling record less than five years old um but i think i guess to me it says something that uh that review came out maybe seven or eight years ago and i remember one of the lines verbatim which to me makes me feel like yeah, maybe we're missing a trick by, I don't know, um, not having more of that kind of like, I mean, admittedly snarky, but sort of, you know, punchy, poignant writing. Um, But I mean, I think uh, I agree with what you're saying, uh, Will and Lisa, that these reviews, when they're well done, can sort of as pieces of writing just be very entertaining and memorable. They are also, however, often even always kind of ego exercises in that, you know, um, criticism or journalism in general as a kind of class of writing tends to involve um, placing the subject um, above the writer in the piece of writing, I would say. Um, And these hatchet job reviews are kind of about taking that format and actually saying, no, 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 look at me. Like I can do like really funny zingers and, um, I like can completely take apart this record and it's very much putting the writer in the centre of the frame mm-hmm. and uh, I think when it works it can be great but um, it's not necessarily like a very 
positive or constructive tendency to indulge on a regular basis. And I think actually a lot of that writing from the 90s, in my relatively limited experience of it, um, you know, maybe there were there were like brilliant pieces that stood out, but in general, the culture wasn't necessarily like a particularly positive one. So, yeah. Yeah, and I guess in the end, that's a part of being a music journalist that I'm pretty uncomfortable about is this sort of powerful position of, you know, giving something the yay or nay. Um, but I guess regardless of how we feel about, yeah, these sort of uh, classic hatchet jobs, is it maybe safe to say that criticism across the board could um, be a bit more fearless? And does everybody feel that way? That's probably, you probably have a point there. Although um, I think what you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, previous to this recording about the, about how the, the nature of criticism or music journalism is changing is, is really something important to assess here um, because now we live in a time where people don't have to rely on our words to get a sense of the music that we're talking about. Like they can listen to it usually on the pa- the same page. So uh, um, are the goals the same when that's the case? So we have to reassess what our goals are as critics. And I guess my feeling too is we talked about this at the beginning that you only want to devote your personal energy to something that you feel excited about or it's hard to... Um, devote your own resources to, um, you know, uh, anything that you give a negative review, there's so much music coming out that that took the place of a potentially positive review. And that's also true from an editor's standpoint, that there's only so many reviews per day. And even if they were, even if the entire section was dedicated to recommending uh, great music, we would still um, miss plenty of things. Um, So, yeah, it's tempting to wonder if maybe the role is shifting towards the combination of, um, you know, things like uh, streams and embedded players and the sheer volume of music coming out. It makes you wonder if maybe the role is just changing to something that um, uh, is more focused on recommending rather than critiquing. Um, although I'm, I'm definitely hesitant to embrace that. That, I don't know, it doesn't feel like an entirely positive development to me. Um. Yeah, this might sort of help explain why I've ended up writing so many nasty reviews over the years. But I sort of draw different conclusions from, like, I agree with the analysis of what the way things are going, but I sort of draw different conclusions from it in my own writing, which is that, um, in general, the thing that motivates me to review something in an ideal situation is that it has some really interesting idea or quality that I really want to sink my teeth into and oh that's interesting to think about Um, there's something there maybe it involves reading around it a bit really spending time with the record working out how I feel about it working through the implications of certain ideas or suggestions made by the record Um, and the conclusions of that process can be positive or negative Um, that has no bearing on whether that it sort of like stimulates my brain I guess in in this particular way and if anything I think this is something that critics can still offer that um, this new world of superabundance can't replace because it's exactly what you don't get from you know 
SoundCloud embeds and like all that stuff is sort of um, insight, to put it simply. And it would be not, you know, I can't, I can't speak to whether I achieve that goal every time. Obviously, it's what I tried to do, but it would be nice to think that um, journalists can supply this level of insight that isn't available from algorithms, playlisting, all these other things. Okay, that's it for this month's show. Thank you for listening. We encourage you to weigh in with your thoughts on that last part of the show in the comments section. And we look forward to welcoming you back for another edition of The Hour at the end of November.